As a matter of fact, one of the rituals I used to have when I was in martial arts, when I was uh, a student coming into it, my teacher said, get on the floor, now get up. I just taught you the hardest thing that you'll ever have to do. Get up on your own. Get up on your own two feet. And when someone knocks you down, I'll be here, but you still have to do the work. <laughs> if your dad did that to you and said, you know, here's your beer, great, now put it down. You don't need that to be a man. You don't need that. You can want it, you can enjoy it, but you don't need it. Welcome to the 1000 Day Sober Podcast. My name is Lee Davy. I am not an alcoholic. I refuse to be anonymous. I am someone that doesn't drink alcohol. And I spend every waking moment of my life helping other people do the same. Like right now. Booyah! How's it going, everybody? Hope you're having a wonderful day. I won't keep you too long. Just a few... Uh, what's the word? Housekeeping issues. So I am going to be creating a workshop, a two-hour workshop. I think it's going to be two hours between uh, 90 minutes and two hours on anxiety and overwhelm. So if you think about it, uh, most of us, when we are triggered, uh, when we're trying to give up our addiction, it's either an anchor trigger or it's an emotional trigger, right? So anchor triggers are triggers that you know, people like us do things like uh, this. So, for example, let's say you have sex and you're a cigarette smoker. Like the other days, after you've had sex, you're going to smoke a cigarette. After you've had a meal, going to smoke a cigarette. For me, watching football on TV, going to have a can of lager. So it's an anchor trigger. It's just something I do. There's no kind of like real thought behind it. I just go do it. That's an anchor trigger. But then there's the other triggers, which are the emotionally based triggers. Okay. And a lot of these come from anxiety ruminating into the past or projecting ourselves into a worrying future, okay? So I'm going to be doing a workshop on that in late November, early December on anxiety and overwhelm. If you want to find out more details on that, book your seat. It will be paid, but I don't know how much I'm going to charge yet. Send us an email to 1kdaysober at gmail.com and we'll give you more information, okay? If you haven't already done so, get over to Instagram, get over to YouTube, 1000 Days Sober, and check out the work we're doing there. We're putting some really good stuff out. It's all free, of course, so you can uh, learn. Many, many people learn to uh, quit alcohol uh, just by listening to the podcast and checking out our YouTube channel and the Instagram channel, so go do that. If you want to take it a step further, though, if you would love to join our Strive community, if you would like to work with me and our team of coaches here, on the Strive Method for Addiction, which is our six-month uh, workshop with personal coaching. If you would like to do that, then head over to www.1000daysober.com and book yourself a choose-yourself call. Similarly, we have the Strive Method for Relationships. If you are really, really struggling right now in your relationship, and it doesn't matter if you think you're the greatest wife or husband in the world and your wife or your husband is a complete and like a dick or fanny, right? We only need to work on ourselves if we want our relationships to become resilient and have a connected relationship. Um, a lack of relational literacy is the heart of all addiction, folks. If you want to learn more about how to improve your relationship with yourself or your relationship with other people, then head to the same website, www.1000daysober.com, and schedule yourself for a choose yourself call. And we will open you up to the possibilities of working with me and my team for six months. Uh, on the Strive Method for Relationships, okay? Finally, if you would like to join our private Facebook group, again, free of charge, it's growing now. We've got about 125 members. We started a couple of weeks ago. We're going to grow and grow and grow. If you want a part of that, be a part of that conversation and intermingle with our 1,000 Day Sober coaches, then email us at 1kdaysober at gmail.com, 1 K, that's the number one, 1kdaysober at gmail.com. Okay. Oh, and rate and review the show. If you really like it, rate and review it on whatever podcast platform you're on and tell somebody else about it. Like really important word of mouth. Tell somebody else about it. You could change somebody's life. Okay. Anyway, onto this episode and I'm interviewing the multi-talented, absolutely beautiful and amazing orgasmic Orpheus Black. What a name, huh? Orpheus Black. He's a writer. He's a philosopher, he's a sex educator, a coach, and a public speaker. And he's written a most amazing book called The Enso, which I really, really um, advise you go buy it. It's amazing. Okay. And we're going to be talking about freedom and uh, development through surrender. 
okay, through surrender. And some of the things we're going to be talking about is a differentiating between um, vanilla, the vanilla world, and the kink world, or what you might know as BDSM, uh, kink. Uh, we're going to be focusing on, on the process uh, instead of end goal. We're going to be talking about the need to, or not need, but the, the benefits of relinquishing control and easing ourselves into the power of surrender and submission. We're going to be talking about our perceptions, others and ourselves. We're going to be talking about the incredibly often missing aspect in our life of ritualism. Okay, ritualism and how that ties into addiction. And we'll be also talking about pseudo rituals such as drinking alcohol as a rite of passage to being a man, what that means. And we'll also be talking about collective effort versus individual effort and a whole lot more. And if you want to learn more about this particular episode, you can go to www.1000daysober.com, go to the podcast page, find Orpheus Black's little hole there, and you will find all the links to his work and you will find uh, the show notes there as well. So without further ado, I'm going to shut the hell up and leave you in the capable hands of Orpheus Black. But before I do that, please make sure that you give yourself an early Christmas present, get over to the website, book yourself a choose yourself call and start working on your addiction or your relationships today okay i'll see you on the other end of that call take care bye orpheus black welcome to the 1000 days sober podcast how's life everything's great thank you for having me i really look forward to this i'm excited i picked up your book like a typical unprepared podcaster as i am i started reading your book last night and, uh, <laughs> i couldn't i couldn't put it down um <laughs> First, I want to say what a beautiful writer you are. Thank you so much. Thank um, you so much. And I love the depth that you go to, and you really opened me up to a world that I have had not... Well, let me say this, because uh, uh, we can talk about it, actually. The right. preconceived view that I had of the world before I read your book was mm -hmm. nothing like the view that I have on it now, and I still haven't got a clue, but I'm a little bit more wiser, and it, it kind of really got me thinking a lot. So. I'd just like to just open up and say, where did the inspiration to write the Enso come from? And a little bit about your journey into BDSM. And there'll be some people listening to this who don't even know what that is. So an explanation to them <laughs> could help as well, I guess. The inspiration for my book actually came out of a, a huge breakup that I had. Um, I have multiple partners. I'm poly, which means I'm eth ethically non-monogamous. And um, two of my partners of eight years were leaving me. And what I did was I sat down and wrote down all the things that I would have advised myself to do had I been able to go back and do this kind of see myself in a different light and give myself the advice that I never had. And that's mm. where it really came out of. It was an opportunity to really explore the framing of my sexuality and the sexuality of other people within this context. And so that was really important to me. I had received a mentorship in how to throw floggers and how to create pleasure and how to create pain and how to use this in this way. But no one taught me how to exist in relationship to other people through our desires, through our mutual wants and needs and actions. And that was really important. When I came into uh, what I like to call kink, okay? And, and for those that don't know, kink is really simple to understand. Kink is any deviation from what you think is normal sexual behavior. So whatever you think mom and dad do in the bedroom or your brothers or your cousins, or your neighbors, whatever you think that they do, whatever you do outside of that is kinky, whatever it is. It doesn't matter what you think it is. It's drinking soda while having sex or watching a game while receiving some kind of sexual pleasure that's kink. It's, it doesn't have to be hanging off the, the rafters or bondage or fire or anything. Okay. So now knowing this, I came into this as a performer on stages in clubs in Hollywood. Took me a year to get mentored, five years to become proficient. And we worked with the general public. And yeah, I could throw floggers and I could throw ropes and whips and tie women up, give them pleasure, women and men, because in those clubs, we had to play with both. We couldn't discriminate. Hmm. But really understanding desire had eluded me. I could do sex, but I couldn't be myself in sexual proximity to another person, in intimate proximity to another person. And I couldn't derive an idea of who I was 
in that space. I was always projecting. I was always using. I was always creating context, but never able to really settle in and be me in my sexuality. And so I wrote this book. And when I was reading it and um, absorbing almost like the, uh, the kink versus vanilla kind of battle that was going on, I realized that, that you could widen the context to just cover life, that there are so many people who just cannot be themselves. You take the people who listen to this now, who, you know, alcohol is, uh, or their other addictions are locking them into this vanilla subservient world of rules and regulations that they, they can't see. There's no rule book there, but they're, they're binded by it in their subconscious, you know, and, and that there's the shame and the fear that prevents them from breaking free. The first thing they need is people like you talking about being different in a whole different way, which I think you did in the end. So thank you so much. Yes. Vanilla, in my opinion, what we call vanilla life, normal life is really what the things that we're comfortable with presenting to the world. But so vanilla sexuality is what we're comfortable with presenting. But really, there is a whole world that we're trying to keep the rest of society from not seeing. There's a whole plethora of things about us that we don't want people to know. And so we do things to mask it. We present in a very specific way that helps us hide it from ourselves and help us hide it from other people. Kink is just one of those things. But so is being gay or lesbian. So is... uh, having desires to, to be something that maybe your parents didn't want for you or take a path that, that is uh, less traveled, maybe doing something crazy uh, that really conflicts with society is something that you're suppressing. And so we need, oftentimes we need to try and find uh, things that take our minds away from it, like alcohol. I actually uh, had an alcohol problem for a long time, from the time I was 15 to the time I was 35, yeah. you know, so a good long time. But I realized I didn't have coping skills. And then when I developed coping skills, I had to see what I was coping with. It was a lack of honesty and authenticity in my life. I wanted to live out loud. I wanted to be me and be accepted as me. And the lie was really creating a context where I couldn't explore that. Is that your the, the ghost? Ghost in your bedroom, <laughs> right? Activate Act your phone. My my phone is like didn't understand that, and I'm like, you're not supposed just, to. <laughs> just, as, just as you're expl- explaining about like you know wanting to be yourself and present your real, true, authentic you, your phone tells you that it doesn't understand you. Exactly. Exactly. Big brother's so, looking in, obvious. <laughs> that's exactly what's happening. But, you know, it, so it's so important to, to kind of get these books that actually humanize the experience that mm. takes it out of this sensationalized manner that is, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey or that it's the secretary or that it's your favorite late night porn that you watch when no one else is around. It is not that. It is about acceptance. It's about understanding and navigating power dynamics, and it's about living in your truth as it pertains to who you are as a human being, a fully functional, multidimensional human being. It's really difficult because every time I think that I've, I've up-leveled myself and I've, uh, I've kind of like peeled back another layer of authenticity and, and judgment, you know, like shedding my judgment. Something else comes up to test me. Like somebody asked me yesterday, wrote to me and said, could they be on the podcast? And I had a look. It was a Muslim American guy who, and when I read his, uh, his bio, he teaches people to be in polyamorous relationships. But it was something that the way that the text was, it, was, it, it made me feel like the women were being, like the power was being taken away from them. And mm-hmm. I, wrote, I wrote to him, and I was like, oh, sorry, you're not for my audience. I completely judged him. And right. then I read your book, The End So Afterwards, and I was like, okay, these are kind of, these could be like completely different ways of being and behaving and rule setting. And like your book seemed to be much more like uh, uh, spiritual and like uh, really humanistic, where it's like, I don't know this other guy. I just looked at his website and judged him. So mm-hmm. it, it, it's so hard to get out of this kind of like construct and this training that we've had from, from our parents and our mentors. Really difficult. 
It is difficult. And here's how I like to explain it. And I, 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 I want to make this analogy that when I'm working with like coaching people through their sexuality, I, I, I specialize in kink and polyamory, but specifically sexuality in general. And so what I say is there's what you repress, there's what you suppress, and then there's what you present. Really simple, right? Imagine you're a kid. I am quite sure we've all done this where we've lost something. We know it wasn't outside. We lost it inside, but we can't find it. And after a period of time, we've forgotten where it is, what it looked like, or even that we wanted it, right? Mm. That's what you repress. You, you know, something's there, but you've just given up looking for it. Then there's what we suppress. Imagine telling a kid to clean his room and he just stuffs everything in the closet, right? He knows exactly where everything is. He knows what's in there, but he's hiding it. Mm. And then he presents, hey, mom, look, everything is fine, right? Everything's the, in line with what your narrative is. That's our presentation. Mm. Really simple. But you know that everything's not together. You know that everything's not constructed. You know, and, and there's a cognitive difference whether you believe that your mom believes you that the authority figure believes you, that society believes that you're in line with those narratives. That presentation is what we call vanilla. That closet is what we call kink. That unexamined space that you're hiding from everyone else. Now, I normalize the process because I've said, we all engage in this space. We all do it, whether we want to admit to it or not. There's something we're hiding from other people because we don't want to be shamed about it. We don't want to feel different. We don't want to be ostracized. We don't want people to make fun of us. My job is to come in and say, hey, you know that bear that you hit, you know, that, that you used to be here? Can you get that for me? And then they go th- open the closet, go in, shift through all their stuff, reacquaint themselves, find it, bring it out, close it. And then we sit with it and then we normalize it. And then we find a place for it in the presentation. So now they're presenting a little different, a little more authentically. And we do this piece by piece by piece. Because they need to have time to acclimate their presentation, their vanilla. But every day it becomes a little more authentic, a little more. And what I find amazingly is, is that there's some hard to believe spaces where it's like, I can't believe that I'm being accepted for something that I thought was shameful. What's wrong with me that you like me and you know this about me, right? There's this dissonance that happens. But once that becomes resolved, people become happier with their existence. That's what my book tries to do, is Mm. to really bring people into that space where they can be happy and understand that this is a lifelong process of integration, integrating your wants, your needs, your desires into this other space. The book smashed me straight from the beginning because it talks about submission. And one of the key words that came up around submission is resistance. So in the work that we do at 1000 Days Sober with the Strive Method, we are always battling resistance. So we, we, we're talking about uh, the voice that appears in our head when we're on the cusp of greatness that climbs us down from that wall, that crime climbs us down from achieving our true greatness. So when it comes to addiction and alcohol, is the voice is telling us to drink. It's the voice is saying, don't listen to what Orpheus and Lee say. It's the voice is judging us to keep us on that path of addiction, right? So mm-hmm. what we do is we help people to understand what resistance is, that it exists, and then to become the voice of resistance so you can kind of head it off at a pass and defeat it. You introduce the word submission in conjunction with resistance. And it really got me thinking, and I haven't unraveled it all yet, but but I was like, this is something I need to be learning more about so I can teach people because there's something going on here that I don't understand yet, but I think it's really powerful. So could you just Start by saying what is submission, how it relates to resistance. And I might have a few questions to throw at you in there. Yeah, definitely. Submission. <laughs> I, I want to make it not in king terms. I want to make this in general terms. Submission is a perpetual state of surrender. It's giving yourself over to the process and understanding that resistance is really actually about control. And control is about safety. Every time that I've talked two people about their control issues. It's like, I want to feel safe in this space. I need to control everything so that I feel comfortable. But what they really mean is I feel safe. That resistance is like coming up because it is charting safety. So submission is giving yourself over to the process. It's believing that there's a way of being that doesn't have to be 
to stand in the face of, to contradict, to confront, but to allow and to give yourself permission to undergo this, permission to be happy, permission to be free of your problem, permission to really let go of all the things that are hindering you. I think the next thing that you have to know about surrender is it's made up of two things, letting go and not holding on, Mm -hmm. right? They seem contradictory, but if you've ever been in an argument where you're like, you know what, I'm walking away and you let go of the conversation, but you held on to the pain, you didn't truly let go, right? Mm. Submission is letting go of the thing that's keeping you down and not holding on to the feelings that want to drag you back into that space. So for me, it's something you do every day where surrender is something you do once. But every day you surrender to it, every day you surrender to it, the next day and the next day, the next day. And eventually it becomes a perpetual state of being, giving yourself permission to go through the process. When I was reading it, I was thinking to myself, so what I wrote here was, um, once this is from the end, so whereas submission is a perpetual state of non-resistance, which is akin to the Buddhist term enlightenment, once developed, a person in their submission no longer has the desire to resist, to struggle, to fight their nature. They no longer clamor for external methods of control. So when I was reading that, I was thinking to myself, someone's got an alcohol problem and resistance is kicking their ass. Resistance is saying to them, you need a drink now, you need a drink, you need a drink. But what you're saying is, you, you not not to fight that resistance, but to submit to it. But how do we view that without drinking? Because there's a way of looking at this and going, ah, oh, fuck it, I'm just going to drink. I'm going to submit and drink. We don't want that. But how no. do we use submission to, 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 to beat and defeat resistance, but not drink? Rumi used to say the, the cure for the pain is in the pain, giving yourself over to it not avoiding it, going through it and, uh, and going into it with a clear understanding that, yes, it's going to be painful. Yes, it's going to be difficult, but the process is what's important. And we have to give ourselves permission to be happy, right? Drinking doesn't make you happy. It just takes you away from the problem. Yeah. It doesn't bring you joy in and of itself. What it does is numb you so that you don't feel as much. So for me, when, especially when I was dealing with, with drinking, it was escapism, right? And as we know, escapism is a part of that fight, flight, or freeze process. It becomes a part, and, it, and that's a chemical addiction in of itself because it's neurological and biological. It's not just something that you tell yourself to stop. When you're engaged in that escapism, which is the flight, there's hormones that are released in their course into your body and you're looking for the out that has been there for you this whole time. It's easy. This is permission to go a different way. And all you have to do is give yourself over to it once and just feel it. Don't try to control it. Don't try to resist it. Don't try to fight it. Just feel it. What are you scared of? What's the fear? When you start examining that, you're starting to do the work, right? In Buddhism, we have a thing called mushin, which means no mind, where you're not having an opinion about it one way or the other. You're just allowing yourself to be in the space. That's hard for us to be us in the space, in the moment, in the juice. So submission is a giving yourself over to that process. I just got really upset then. And um, I think why I got so emotional is you explained it so eloquently and so simply. Mm. And why I got upset is there's so many people out there really suffering and struggling when what we're describing here is just to submit and to just to be a human being and to experience this trigger, this feeling, this urge, this desire, and know that it's within your power to just write it out because you're a human being. Right. But we make it so fucking complicated. Yeah, that's it. You know, that's the problem with Buddhism. I mean, the problem is, is the answer is simple and they strip it down and you're like, that can't be real. It can't be real. I I need to build a story around it to make it more complex. Exactly. And I I need to, to, I'm different. I'm I'm not that person. I'm unique. I have issues and I have bags. No, no, don't care what your problem is. The solution is the same thing. Stop fighting it. There's no need to fight. That's your reflex. There's no need to run or avoid or sink in. That's your reflex. There's no need to shut down. That's your reflex. If you really want to control, start with your emotional process. Mm. Stop being triggered into a space and say, I can't control myself. Let go 
of the narrative that has destroyed you to this point, right? Mm. And feel it. If you weren't supposed to feel it, you wouldn't have pain receptors. You wouldn't have emotional responses. You wouldn't feel pain, agony. You know what I mean? So for me, I had to just be in the moment. Just allow myself to deal with the traumas, the triggers, the abuse, the suffering, the unintegrated parts of me that I wasn't bringing to bear, right? And I came out the other side. I didn't think I could. I didn't think I would, but I would rather die than go into this other place of this, this cycle that, had, you know, that I was trapped in. I just want to touch upon that as well, because you just, I've been teaching my method to overcome addiction for 10 years now. And you've just made me realize that I, I've been actually teaching, my, or I've been telling my story that I, I just realized, like call it an epiphany, whatever you want, with some guidance from a mentor, that alcohol was providing me with no value. And once I realized it was no value, then it just, I had no desire to drink. But what you're actually getting me to realize now that what obviously happened is when I decided to stop, of course, I felt the triggers to drink. It's just I had the ability and the confidence and the added, I'm never fucking giving into this. And I, and I will talk about that in, in a little bit. So I experienced it, but I just wrote it out until eventually I had nothing to experience anymore because it became my new normal. But one thing I wanted to touch upon there, I think, was my superpower, my secret source. I, I don't know what you think about this. From, a, from the moment of my earliest memory, I've always sought approval because I've always been different than those around me. I've always looked different because I was the only Asian person who grew up in an all-white area. Um, when I got to 10, I was the only Englishman surrounded by Welshmen who despised English people. And, but there was an, an urge and a dis, there, was a, there was an urge to want to fit in and to sell my soul to the devil in order to do that. But there was also this urge to be fucking super different. It was like, right, if they're going to abuse me, if they're going to have a go at me, I'm going to be so different. I'm going to be so angry. I'm going to be so violent. I'm going to be so in everybody's face. And I went that way, which had massive repercussions in my life office, as you can imagine. But boy, did it help me quit addiction. Like, mm -hmm. do, you, do you see that in there where this, this drive to be different allows you to like overcome this and, and generate that power within you? Yeah. Again, they, we're talking about presentation. Right. What you were presenting is like, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to be different. I'm going to be this. I'm going to be that. That's what you chose to present. Mm. Right. That's the vanilla world. That's you making an implicit agreement with society, who I am, how I want to be treated, how I'm going to be treated by others. And then they're supported by a story, a narrative. Right. The diegetics of the story that supports your, 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 that supports this, that supports your presentation. You have to have a story to go along with your wardrobing at background fucking environment. Excuse my mm -hmm. language. Sorry. <laughs> so that's really, and then we get caught up in it and then we don't know how to get out of it. Like we put this robe on this material, this face, this persona, which is the Greek for the mask that people would wear. Right in order to present this, but then we get caught up in the presentation and we're not happy with that either because that's not really who we are. Mm. And then we can't let it go. And then when you try and take it away from us and someone says, this is really not you, we start holding on to it, right? Alcohol becomes part of the identity. Yeah. Alcohol becomes part of the archetype, right? Alcohol becomes a part of the, our protection, how we protect ourselves, right? How we stay safe. Because it helps us numb the pain of dealing with the conflict between the mask I'm wearing and who I actually am, right? We want acceptance. And when we can't get it, we go the opposite damn direction. That's why when I stopped drinking, I... Did you, have you ever heard of these Myers-Briggs personality tests? Mm -hmm. When I was working in... When I was in corporate in the railway industry for 20 years, every time I took those tests, I was... Uh, I was an E something, ENTJ or, or something like that. And I remember we had, a, we had this room and at one end it was E, at the other end it was an I. And you had, to, you had to place yourself where you felt you would be, closer to the E extroversion or closer to the introversion scale. And everybody went to the E and one guy stood in the middle. Nobody went to I, one guy stood in the middle. 
And everybody, including me, ridiculed the guy in the middle because we felt that in order to be a proper human being and a man, you needed to be an E. Mm-hmm. And we will mock anybody who is not in an E. When mm-hmm. I stopped drinking, I realized I'm no E. I, 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 I flop around on that continuum when I need to. I'm an E and an I, but mm-hmm. I feel super confident being an I. <laughs> but that's that that is speaking to me now because you what what you're what you're uh, reaffirming to me is I had I had an e mask that was firmly stuck to my face and that was my presentation I would do everything to back that up because that was my personality and identity and I guess what we're touching upon here is giving up drinking in a way is like the ultimate control because now you don't have your face just your mask just dropped to the floor it's like it's like you're fucking naked and everyone mm-hmm. can see how big you are, how fat you are, whatever it is. And you're mm-hmm. like, oh, shit. So you quickly put it all on again. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, also, too, really, when we talk about presentation, what we're talking about is a relationship to other, between self and other, how I perceive others perceiving me. It has nothing to do with really anyone else. It's my perception of what I think other people think about me or how they're perceiving me or how I'm interacting with them. And it's really me self-loathing, self-deprecating, because very rarely do everybody, does anybody go, I think everybody thinks I'm a kick-ass guy. You know, I think everybody thinks I'm really fucking amazing, right? It's <laughs> something negative, yeah. right? And, and so it becomes a part of the process. And to ease that internal narrative that we experience in our mind, that's where the alcohol comes in. To make it just a little easier to go out and perform the next night and the next night and the next night. And we actually see it in our celebrities, right? You're like, yeah. you're rock stars, right? It makes it easier for them to go out and sing the same song, do the same dance, play the same thing every day. To, to be someone that they're not. Yeah. And they use the alcohol and the drugs to ease that process. And we are doing the same thing, just not on as large a stage. But we do it when we go to work, especially if you work at some place you don't want to be doing or doing something you don't want to do and, and living, maybe living life for your parents. Right? You know, your parents told you you're supposed to be a doctor. And now your doctor doing something crappy or you're a woman and you didn't want to have kids. But now you have two kids and a husband and you never wanted that for yourself. And sometimes it's just easier to drink. So you don't have to play the, the, the tape in your head. I wanted to be a dancer and now I'm a mom and I love my kids and I love my husband. I love my life. But this is not what I wanted for myself. That conflict becomes an issue. Right. What we're presenting is in direct conflict to our hopes our dreams, our wants, our needs, and our desires. And alcohol acts like it's making it better. It's just kicking the thing down the street. It's like, don't deal with it tonight, we'll be back tomorrow. Don't deal with it tonight, we'll be back tomorrow. And we just keep filling in that space with alcohol. This is the, uh, this is the concept of value that we teach in the Strive Method for Addictions is you can look at it and go, no, it provides me with incredible value because I'm able to get up on stage and, and blurt out my number one hit. But that's looking at uh, value through short-term instant gratification lens. And you put in a lot of faith in that perspective. That's going to be your belief. That's going to be your conviction. But if you change your perspective and say, well, what is this doing to me long-term? Well, if you believe what me and Orpheus are talking about, you're, you're never going to be yourself. And mm-hmm. is that sacrifice work that an alcohol is helping to contribute to that stuckness? So that's no value. But the value is being able to get up on that stage because you choose to get up on that stage and you mm-hmm. choose to show the world who you really are, and not present who you think they need you to be. Exactly. And, you know, information is power. And the, the interesting thing about the self-inflicted narrative is that it's based on nothing. Think about this. I'm worried about what other people think about me. At no point in time does it involve anyone else. No. <laughs> you know, it's a feedback loop. You are your worst enemy, right? And it can be through conditioning or social norms or whatever. It can be whatever. But the point is, is when you don't wear that shirt because you think it makes you look fat, fat to who? You woke up this morning knowing you were that weight. You ate that sandwich knowing you were that weight. So who is the person that you're worried about seeing you. When you realize it's nobody, then you, you see there's, there's an idiocracy here. It's just stupid. We have to step out of these false ideals, these 
implicit agreements that we have with society because society told you you should be smaller. But I bet you can't find that person. No, this is right. Yeah, this is why I I call this belief system of of the world that is keeping us addicts is invisible because it's happening, but we can't we can't even have a name for it. Like it, it's just we're born into this world of scarcity and need to be bigger and better than we are, and we assume that I don't know being a rock star or being an artist or being the CEO or being the athlete is that, you know, lightly driven by pressures of parents and teachers and so forth, you know, and, and the way that the education system works and advertising and marketing, but there's no name for it. So because there's no name for it, nobody even thinks that it's like the matrix movie. Like you just, you're just stuck in a matrix. You have no idea you are until someone like Orpheus Black writes Enso and you pick it up and you read it and you go, wow, I didn't think like, this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how how important is that in the open mind then right like right you know i have a i have a space place time sacrifice narrative that i use uh it when i'm coaching individuals and it's it's really hard to understand until you do it in negation this is how it shows up for most people this is not the place or the time for that conversation you see what i'm saying i'm not willing to make that sacrifice mm. you see what i'm saying Mm. So we experience space, place, time, sacrifice in the negative, but we very rarely think about in the affirmative. Who's making space for you? Who's holding space for you? Where's the place that you belong? Who takes time with you? Who makes sacrifices to, for you? Those are the four most important things that you'll ever ask yourself. The reason I stopped drinking is because the people who made space for me gave me a place to stay, took time with me, and made sacrifices for me, deserved better than what I was providing. They were worth me showing up 100%, right? Those are the people that I had to be accountable to and for, and I wasn't holding up my end of the bargain. And there's multiple places where we're experiencing that. It could be at work. It could be uh, at home. It could be you know, at, at the bar with your friends. I don't know. But the point is, is those four things are the most important thing because it also goes, how am I holding space for myself? Do I give myself enough time to just be with me or am I scared to be with me because then I start thinking about all my problems? Where's the place that I'm creating for myself in the world, right? How much time am I devoting to me being a better person? right? Me achieving my goals. How much time do I take for that? And what am I willing to sacrifice? And I can tell you the first thing that needs to go, the alcohol, the drinking, right? That's the reality check that we need to come with. And now I often use it in sexuality and and also men's groups. But for me, it's a universal thing because it is the four basic components of any ritual. No matter whether you go to church, whether you go to office, whether you go to business, it's the four basic components of any ritual. And drinking is a ritual, right? You go to a place where all your friends are, they hold a space, right? And you're taking a lot of time out of your day, out of your night, and you're sacrificing a lot of shit because you're drunk. Some people lose their jobs. Some people lose their license. Some people lose their lives. There's a lot of sacrifice involved. Every ritual has those four components. And when you can see how it works positively and negatively, you can better make decisions because it's a process that we can all follow. I'm going to touch upon rituals in a minute. Thanks you for bringing that up. But I just wanted to touch on what you did there as a learning point for the people listening. Like in the thought phase of our Strive Method for Addictions, which is the phase where we deal with our ambivalence towards stopping drinking or not, we touch upon the important topic of motivation and extrinsic and intrinsic motivation, and how people focus on extrinsic motivators, and then they, they, they work for a short period of time, but they don't last. What you just did then was a perfect combination of extrinsic and intrinsic. So you went through your, your process, your five-step uh, process, and you started with extrinsic. So these people are showing up for me, so I better show up for them. So that's it, extrinsic, my wife, my kid, my employer, right? But then you dovetailed it beautifully with intrinsic, which is where am I showing off myself? Where am I holding space for myself? 
that is a perfect dovetail of extrinsic, intrinsic motivation. You get that right, you can overcome anything. Anything. It doesn't, it does not matter what it is because it is the, and again, you can add more components, right? You can add more components, but the four basics of any ritual, don't care if it's going to church. I don't care if it's going to war. I don't care if it's, it's going into surgery. It's all the same thing. There is no change, right? It is a roadmap for you to find who you are on the inside to explore those dark spaces and to really confront the external presentation that you do every day and to really find a motivator that's going to bring congruency between those things. And make no mistake, it is between those things. It is a conflict between your primal and your social narratives coming together and finding integration and cohesion with one another. Hmm. I want to talk about rituals a little bit. Sure. I have been reading, I've nearly finished it now, uh, The King, The Warrior, The Magician, and The Lover. I don't know if you've ever read it. Yeah. And I know after, after reading it that this is my next layer of work, right? This is what I need to go into and learn more about. But what struck me from it was this realizing that even now, like I, I feel like I'm in the best physical, mental, and spiritual shape of my life, but I'm also fully aware that I, I have no idea of the depth of my power. Like I, I feel like I'm, I've just been reborn, right? And one of the things I've learned is the boy psychology, particularly the hero, has been running my life. So imagine now being my wife, Liza, who is uh, very deeply spiritual. She's a healer. She's like fucking switched on. Mm -hmm. And she's in a relationship with a boy, right? Right? Who is all about me, 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 me. And what I was learning in this book was how we don't have any rituals in life anymore. So think about an Amazonian tribe. There's this guy, he's in his teenage years, he's a boy. And, and the men take him out in the woods. They cover him in honey. They attach fire-breathing like ants all over him. They sting the shit out of him. He hallucinates but he kills the boy and he moves into the man, right? And then I think about how did my boy psychology get locked in this man's body? And I think it's through the pseudo rituals we have that have replaced the rituals, one of them being alcohol. So my dad saying to me at 14 years of age, drink this. Mm -hmm. A guy who never connected to me on any level, drink mm -hmm. this and you'll be a man. Like, mm -hmm. And I'm craving his approval, so I drink it. And that pseudo-ritual, and I call it a pseudo-ritual because it ain't no fucking ritual, and all it did is it locked me into this, this insane energy where I could be, luckily I stopped drinking at 35, right, but I could be a 30-year-old with mm -hmm. my mates in Amsterdam in the red light district wanting mm -hmm. to do everything when I've got a wife and kid at home because I'm a boy. Like, where? just touch upon that a little bit with your, your wealth and experience. And where, where does rituals, how can you teach people to bring ritualization into life in a positive aspect? Let's talk about, just give me an example. There are many African rituals where intoxicants are ingested, right? And they say, here, drink this. And they trip out, have this hallucinogenic thing. But really, the difference between that ritual and your ritual is that their ritual has a start, a middle, and an ending. And it's short, right? I, most of the time, I assume. Most yeah. of the time. It it's is, a ceremony. It's, it's a ceremony. ceremony. Exactly. It, there's a start, there's a middle, and an end. When we are introduced into this, what you call a pseudo-ritual, is there's no ending. Mm. We keep doing it, waiting for the payoff. Waiting for the payoff. I'm going to be a man today, right? I'm going to be a man today. I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to get the approval today. I'm going to get the approval today. I'm going to get the approval today. And it never Boom. stops. Yeah. Right? Boom. It never stops. The difference between theirs is like, you're now a man, put it down. You, that's not what makes you a man. Going through this process made you a man. And now there's accountability and responsibility. And here's how we're going to support you through it as a group. Here's what you owe the group. Here's what the group owes you. There's mutual responsibility. And now we can move forward. And now for me, this is, going to be, this is going to be a little far out, but since we're talking about rituals, individualistic cultures focus on the individual. Collective is cultures reflect on the collective. You have rituals of passage and rites of passage in collectivist societies, not so much in individualistic societies, because everybody's in it for themselves. 
Yeah. You see no mutual responsibility. I don't have to hold space for you. Take the beer. Go on. I get, I, you had your first beer with me. Great. Go on. Go try and find your thing. Here's a, here's a little aid for you. Whereas these people are like, when you fall, we're going to pick you up and you don't need no aid. You don't need to dull the pain. Feel it. It's painful. Right. And you can get up. As a matter of fact, one of the rituals I used to have when I was in martial arts, when I was uh, a student coming into it, my teacher said, get on the floor. Now get up. I just taught you the hardest thing that you'll ever have to do. Get up on your own. Get up on your own two feet. And when someone knocks you down, I'll be here, but you still have to do the work. <laughs> if your dad did that to you and, and said, you know, here's your beer. Great. Now put it down. You don't need that to be a man. You don't need that. You can want it. You can enjoy it, but you don't need it. You can put it down whenever you're ready. That would have been a whole different experience. Oh, yeah. Right. So the rituals have to have a beginning, a middle and an end. And there has to be a process, a way of living that is that contributes to both you as the individual and the collective. Right. Because you became a man, but you were part of a brotherhood. Mm. This is where these support systems, we always just call strive. It's like massively important and you can't always figure out why it is. Mm-hmm. It's just education and you know a lack of understanding about how it works, but it works. So keep mm-hmm. doing, keep doing what works. You know, like what you said there about getting up off the floor. Every morning, I wake up at eight o'clock and I take my daughter to the park and I'm there with her for a couple of hours. And this morning, there was this little girl screaming. She must have been about three, right? She is screaming and screaming, and the whole park can see her. And her mom is like, "I ain't carrying you." In the calmest mm-hmm. voice you can imagine. I ain't here to rescue you, she kept saying, in the calmest voice ever. And I walked up and I looked and straight away I judged her. And then I caught it and I said, wow, that is a wonderful parent right there. And I wonder how many people would have just picked the child up because they were worried about what everybody else was going to be thinking about her, which is what Mm -hmm. you said earlier on, this perception about whatever people... Yeah. Right. Because the reason the, if I don't pick them up, then I'm going to look like a bad parent, which, again, is the presentation. Right. And we don't want to get trapped in the presentation. We want to do what's right because it's our kid. And mm-hmm. I know I understand what's right for my kid at this moment. And it's like you're going to have to walk. I made my son in my family. When you can walk, you can walk. We, there ain't no strollers. You know, what I mean, there ain't no this, that and the other. You walk and that's it. And then when you get tired someone will be there to support you. We'll pick mm-hmm. you up. And when you're strong again, we put you back down so you can walk again. And that is the explicit agreement that we have with each other. And when you fall, we get down there with you and we wait till you get up. Someone will be here when you pick yourself up. That helps a person feel safe, like they can do anything. Like there is a collective of people who are invested in you. And you as an individual have to have these individual experiences and it's going to be painful and you're going to go through it, but there's no crutches, right? That for me is really important. Those are the parts of the everyday ritual that we should be experiencing. That, That reminds me again of the hero energy. So in my work, when I'm helping people to quit their addictions, there's been times in the past and it sometimes shows up today where someone will fall down. And I will instantly go into hero mode and I'll want to pick them up because of a projection that I'm creating in my head that if I don't, they'll think that I'm not a worthy leader or a worthy guide. Whereas what I'm doing is I'm turning them into a victim by getting down and picking them up. And then if I, if I make them a victim and I don't pick them up, they're going to make me a villain. <laughs> so, right. so I need to get out of that triangle. I need to get out of that drama and I need to just get down and do what you said, you know, like there's a, Again, when you when you look at Taoism, for some reason, this society has a issue with binary labels and Taoist Taoism is rooted in, in, in uh, binary narratives. And right. And so when you look at trauma through the Taoist perspective, you see that there's two types of trauma predominantly. There's what someone did to you or what someone didn't do for you. Right. Dad punched me. Mom didn't stop him. Mm. So we always have to understand that what we do can cause a a trauma. What we don't do can also cause a trauma. Mm. 
And so I have to be there when I make an obligation to someone to be someone for someone, I show up 100%. I make an explicit agreement with them. Here is my role in your life. This is what I do for you. And you can depend on me for that. Mm. And that's how I show up. Again, this is called Xin Qi, X-I-N, next word is Q-I. Xin Qi, the power that people feel when you do what you say you're going to do, right? When you can show up in solidarity, in brotherhood, fulfill your agreement, fulfill your contract with that person, there's an energy exchange between those two and people that empower them. Yeah. Right. So I tell him my role is not to pick you up. And I teach I'm a guru right now and I teach martial arts. And if I put somebody down, I make them get up. I'll be here. I'll support you. I know it doesn't feel good. I know you're embarrassed. I know you're dealing with some emotional stuff. I know some stuff is coming up for you from your past, from your other traumas, because maybe your dad knocked you down and didn't help you because someone punched you in high school. There's lots of stuff, but it's okay. You get up whenever you're ready and we'll be here. Mm, I like that. One thing you talked about in Enso, and it's related to everything we've been talking about, really, is letting go. So there'll be people listening to this, and a lot of it will be making sense. But I guess they'll be asking themselves, well, how do I let go? Like, how do I start fresh? How do I let go of all this bullshit, all these masks, all this armor? How do I do it? How do you get into that kind of teachings and guidance and uh, questions with people? I, again, I use a, <laughs> I use a lot of... Buddhism and in Taoism, but the the one thing that's not commonly known about Buddhism is that the idea of attachment operates on two different planes. And one is that we all have attachments and that we all shouldn't have them or whatever. But realizing your attachments and having explicit agreements with your attachments is very important. When you go into a place and you say, I have a car. I enjoy this new car. It's great. But one day it'll break down. One day it'll be hit. One day it won't move. Hmm. And I'm okay with that. You're letting go. You're starting the process of letting go. When you look at your wife and you know, one day either you or I won't be here. And I can let go of that attachment to an outcome that you're supposed to live happily ever after. I'm letting go of that outcome. I'm letting go of this outcome that my car is going to be beautiful and be there for me every day. We start the process of detachment, and then we start the process of appreciation. If I know that it's not going to be here or look like this forever, let me appreciate it right now. Mm. Every morning I wake up next to my wife, I look at her, I love her, and I say, this is what I want to do today. Every night she goes to sleep, I look at her and say, thank you for giving me this whole day with her. Mm. You have to start the process of letting go, the process, and it's a never-ending process until detachment happens. So that's how I start the process of detachment and letting go. I like that. I like that a lot. Could you touch upon the illusion of control? It's something that I struggle with a little bit because on one hand, I tell myself a story that for 35 years, I wasn't in control. And then I stopped drinking and I gained control. And then I listened to people like yourself talk about the illusion of control. And then I get a little bit confused. So if you could touch upon that, would be great. Mm -hmm. The illusion of control, I think we said this before, it's really about safety. You know what I mean? You feel unsafe or uncomfortable and you want to act to create the context or the frames that make you feel better. That's really what it's about. I think the best way to kind of examine this is to ask a person, what is your definition of control? Apply a definition, and then let's see if it fits the situational narratives that are happening. You know, oh, well, I need to have control of my relationship because I don't want my heart broken. Why would you think it'd get broken? Do you not feel safe with this per- giving your person, this person your heart? Do you not mm-hmm. trust them? Is it about trust? It's about safety? Is it about reassurance? What is it that makes you feel that you need to control outcomes? What outcome are you attached to? 
that process of examination really starts people to understand why they want control, right? So Mm -hmm. for me, let me give you an example of how people conflate and use trust as an excuse, right? Biggest mistake is, is that every relationship is built on trust. And that's not true because really relationships aren't built on trust. They're built on faith, belief in the absence of proof. I believe that you won't hurt me. I have no proof. I believe that you're going to honor your agreements. I have the belief that's faith. There's no proof. So then what is trust? My level of comfort with an established pattern of behavior that you do what you say you're going to do. You're going to be where you say you're going to be. You show up when you say you're going to show up. That's trust. Control is trying to force them to be where they say they're going to be, to do what they say they're going to do, to create context. I'm trying to control for my comfort and, in essence, for my safety. That's how we have to really look at control. So when I'm looking for control, let me look at what doesn't make me feel safe about this situation. Maybe that's a warning sign. Maybe that's trying to let you know something about the situation, the context, and or the person that you're dealing with. Sometimes you have to let go and let it play out so you can see, am I right? Can I have faith in this person? Can I trust them with my heart, my soul, my money, my emotions? Or sometimes you just need to not engage because you don't feel comfortable with their established pattern of behavior. Thank you for that. I will have to look back through that and uh, engage my mind with it some more, but I really appreciate it. <laughs> I know it's difficult. Again, this, that's Buddhism. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you one last question before I let you go. All this, you know, I always say to people, I never thought, I never thought about anything until I stopped drinking, right? It's like a comment I always make. <laughs> and you have a, you have a, a quote by Neil deGrasse Tyson in, in the book, knowing how to think empowers you far beyond those who know only what to think. Mm-hmm. Knowing how to think. How do we teach ourselves how to think? Well, first of all, understanding the narrator in your mind, understanding the dialogue that you use and the words that you use and the context with which you use them in, question everything, including your own thoughts, your own ideas, your preconceived notion, your compulsion. Know thyself, right? Mm. Socrates, you know what I mean? Like, know thyself, know you. To me, alcohol was the biggest hindrance because I didn't know me. I, I was doing alcohol. I wasn't being Orpheus, right? And then when I stopped, I had to learn me all over again. That was the first bit of knowledge that I had to gain. I had to remember what I liked, what I wanted, what I expected for myself. I had to remember my dreams, right? Mm. So for me, for me, learning how to think is questioning everything. Another example of this would be just, again, look at the implicit agreements that you have with society, society and not necessarily other people. Like, why do guys always have to take out the trash? Yeah, I, mean, like, yeah, I always <laughs> say kind of trash. Right? <laughs> like, who said that? I didn't make that agreement with my wife. Like, we never did it for some, for some reason. I have, I have to take it out all the time. Yeah. Right? That's it. So, but we never question it. Right. We never question why I have to do the lawn or 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 vehicle maintenance. Mm. Right. We can make all kinds of assumptions and fill it in. But really, I made an agreement with society. I don't know who society is, but I made an agreement with them. And her and I are abiding by that agreement. I like when we sit down and talk about what do you want? What do you need? What do you desire? What are you looking for? Me just knowing what my partner wants. It's huge. That knowledge Mm. to know what her dreams are and where we overlap and what her motivations are. Same thing with my friends. To hear my friend talk about being like the best guitarist that ever existed. You know what I mean? Like he wants to be that person, like not just Jimi Hendrix, but beyond this thing. Like that gives me knowledge. Yeah. It starts with knowing yourself, knowing the people around you, knowing the situations and the frames and the context that people are providing for you and that you're providing for others. That's where knowledge starts. It's the inquiry of self and other. 
Oh, yes. Thank you for that. I feel like my brain has uh, <laughs> expanded significantly. Uh, you know, when you have an idea of a certain thing, but you really need to meet somebody to put the words to your idea or your thought process. You've, you've done a lot, for that, a lot of that for me today, uh, halfway through the end, so I'll finish it, I'm sure. I'll get some more uh, wisdom on that. If you want to learn more about Orpheus Black, go to www.1000daysober.com. There'll be a podcast page. There'll be a specific one there for Orpheus. You'll be able to check out all of his work, including the end. So now to get in touch with him if you want to. Orpheus, it's been incredible. We've really enjoyed our time. Appreciate it. You have a wonderful day, and thanks for having me. Thank you. Just another reminder, folks, that if you want to work with Lee Davey, that's me, and the rest of the 1000 Days Sober coaching team, then get over to www.1000daysober.com and book yourself a Choose Yourself call with me or a member of the 1000 Days Sober team so we can see if you're a good fit to take the Strive Method for Addictions course, the Strive Method for Relationships course, or just join the Strive Support team. And if you're feeling in a really, really serving mood, please rank and rate our podcast at whatever podcast platform you do or spread the word around social media and tell people to come and listen to us. Thank you very much. Love you all. Bye.